Good morning. The building boom of the noughties was followed by an astonishing 90% collapse in home building, which has left the government scrambling to catch up on a decade of population growth and insufficient housing or services to match. Minister Simon Coveney has put together a Rebuilding Ireland policy that aims to construct the different kinds of housing the country needs, but it's going to take time to build those homes. This morning, we're going to assess if the government plan can work or if the gap between the strategy and the reality on the ground is just too wide. In studio, Lurkin Sir lectures in housing in DIT and he's a columnist with the Sunday Times. Ronan Lyons is an assistant professor of economics at Trinity College Dublin and Carl Dieter is a financial advisor with Irish Mortgage Brokers. Um, Ronan, the census was out this week and uh, I noted you tweet something um, that's unusual in Ireland about housing units and the number of people living them. We know the population's going up. Uh, Ireland's a bit underpopulated compared to pretty much every other high-income country out there. So uh, we knew this was coming. We knew the population was going up. What we didn't know and we found out on, on Thursday was that the average household size has actually gone up in the last five years. This may sound like a, a relatively small thing. It went from 2.72 people in the average household up to 2.75. That may sound like, so what? Um, but... I'm not aware of any other developed country in the world that has ever seen its household size increase. Because if you think about it, people are living longer, people are having fewer children, people are, say, they go to college and they set up their own household then. All of these pressures got pushed down on the household size. If you think of a population of 5 million people and instead of in four-person households, they're in two-person households, you need twice as many dwellings. But is it a bad thing if people are living together? You know, if granny moves in with you instead of living in, you know, a little flat on her own or being shunted off to a nursing home, um, you know, if there are kids staying at home longer, is it necessarily a terrible thing? Well, let's ask them. Yeah, let's let's build 100,000 homes and see if they take them because I'd be pretty sure that granny loves spending time with the grandkids but actually wants her own place. I'm pretty sure that a 19, 20, 21-year-old um, loves the idea of finding their own feet, getting their own place to start off. Uh, I, I think what we have is involuntary um, uh, household size increase. And it's not just family units. You could argue, well, you know, what if, so what if you have a three-generation family? You know, maybe that's just something we get used to. But what if it's uh, seven students in a house? Uh, what if it's 12 professionals or uh, 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 workers from wherever uh, crammed into a house doing sleeping shifts. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, and that's probably even underreported in the census. I'd and say very, people would be very reluctant to say, actually, there's 12 of us in this two-bed apartment. And you mentioned two other things there that were underpopulated compared to other countries. So somewhere like the Netherlands, I think that might be comparable. You know, they would have a very high-density living. But... Is that a fair comparison in the sense that, well, maybe Ireland has it right to have a low density way of life. Maybe it's nicer and maybe we shouldn't necessarily be saying, hey, other countries do high density. We should be able to do it too. Maybe we should either stop producing so many children or acknowledge emigration is a reasonable safety valve. Well, I mean, if you like an expensive way of life. Let's spread out and have very few of us on the, the plot of land that is Ireland. Um, but if you want things that we now take for granted as as human rights, things like electricity and broadband and even water services, Jerry mentioned it, you know, those kinds of things have fixed costs. And if you um, spread them out over a bigger population, uh, in particular, 
in cities, if we allow cities to grow up rather than grow out, um, that will make life cheaper for everyone. And actually, not only that, in the bigger the city, the denser the city, the more people earn on average because you can specialise more. Um, so we're foregoing a hell of a lot by asking the population to stay small and spread out. So you're in favour of the apartment strategy, that this is what we need to get used to. Is that a fair characterization of your views? I, don't, I think if you asked uh, developers, if you asked um, people involved in finance, uh, do we have a problem around policy in relation to building three and four bed family homes for first time buyers. I don't think you'd find one who'd say yes. Um, you'd probably find, in fairness, you'd probably find a couple um, that would say, oh yeah, the bank isn't giving me 100% finance. But I mean, that's not sustainable. Uh, if you talk to the organisations that build offices and hotels and student accommodation and apartment buildings, they'll tell you the, 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 the problem here is is in relation to construction costs and how Ireland builds or in particular, hasn't built apartments over the last 60, 70 years. The only time Ireland really built apartments was in the late 90s, early 2000s, when there was incredibly generous tax reliefs. As soon as those tax reliefs stopped, the apartment building stopped. So we never solved the problem. We just hid it for a moment while people could not pay tax. That wasn't a particularly good strategy. We got apartments in all the wrong places and the apartments that were built were typically poor quality. We need to find out how do we build good quality apartments um, on budget compared to what other people pay in other countries, um, which is probably about a third cheaper than in Ireland. OK, so Lurkin, sir, Ronan um, is of that ilk who wants um, apartments and recognises that we're going to have smaller family units living in them. So this is the future, so we just need to get with the programme. Yeah, well, Ronan's kind of right, to be honest with you. Uh, the way of the world is that, um, particularly with our foreign direct investment strategy, we're attracting the type of companies that don't uh, want to live in in uh, Offaly or in uh, Westmead or places like that. They want to, to come to the large urban areas where their staff will be happy uh, and have services and facilities around them. And, of course, they like to um, locate near each other as well so they can get the benefit of uh, transferring staff between them and poaching staff and poaching their ideas that go with that. That's going to happen in large urban areas, particularly in Dublin and less so, but also in places like Cork and Galway and Limerick. Uh, and that's the way of the world. So the idea, some kind of 1930s devil era um, type idea that we should all be happy with the material goods that we have and listen to our grannies telling stories around the turf fire uh, at night time, that just ain't going to happen. Those days are gone. Uh, and that's the way of the world. And we can't even revert to a kind of a manufacturing strategy where we can put, uh, you know, um, a ribbon factory in Longford and some other sort of bicycle chain factory in rural Sligo because those days are gone. They're, those manufacturing processes are gone out to China and all those countries. So the way of the world is uh, large urban areas. The National Space Strategy, as was, didn't do that. It didn't acknowledge that. The next one is looking like it will, although it's still talking about some illusory uh, city in the Midlands that doesn't exactly exist. Um, but the, that that is the future, and we have to prepare for that in the way we provide our infrastructure, the way we provide quality of life, and that includes things like public transport and Lewis and getting around and theatres and cinemas and fancy coffees, and also the way we live. Uh, and I mean, I think high density living is something that we've made a mess of over the years. We don't understand it. It's far more profitable to build to build three bed semi detached houses for for builders. We need to get our heads around that. We need to build ones that we need to build apartments that you can live in for a long time. Yeah, we've created a generation of accidental landlords by building small apartments. And when as soon as they get married or find a girlfriend, a boyfriend, or a partner, they can't live there anymore. Or they can't sell it because of negative equity, and they've moved on. Uh, and you don't really want to do that. You really people will be staying for longer in the one place. I feel so that place 
pace has to be kind of appropriate ab initio, like from the, from the start. Uh, and that is a challenge. Without a doubt, that's a challenge in terms of construction costs. So and does and this that. Rebuilding Ireland policy uh, <coughs> launched by the Department of the Environment and championed by uh, Minister Simon Coveney, is that policy at the heart of it? Well, I don't think it's at the, at the heart of that, to be honest with you, because so far, as far as I can see, the department even haven't even produced an independent calculation of how much it costs to build a house. Uh, the SCSI have the Society of Chartered Surveyors have, who are the construction professionals, the Construction Industry Federation have, who are the lobby group, um, and both of them come out very similar numbers. Uh, but the department themselves haven't sat down and broken it down brick by brick and the cost of cement and labour and all that kind of stuff. And we're 10 years into this. And it really is shocking that they haven't kind of worked it out themselves yet and kind of provided a template for these kind of costs. Now, and you have an issue too um, with the way the department counts the number of housing units that have been built. So for, you know, they've been giving us figures like, say, in 2006, 90,000 houses were built uh, that year. In 2013, it had collapsed to 8,300. They're saying last year, 15,000 roughly houses were built. Um, you're worried about the numbers, aren't you? Oh, I know. I'm not just worried. I know the numbers are wrong. There's no way there was 14,932 so houses completed last year. So give us your explanation then of why those numbers are wrong and what you think yeah. they should be. Well, a lot of listeners probably don't know, but the way we count a new house in Ireland is by connection to the ESB grid. So when a new house is built, it's connected to the grid. It gets an NPRN. You'll know that as your inside your front door, your meter reading number. Uh, and that gets sent to the DSB as a, as a new house and the DSB pass it on to the, the, the department. Um, the problem is there, though, that a lot of houses that if a house is vacant or an apartment is vacant for more than two years, it requires for ESB rules and perfectly logical uh, that a electrical contractor goes out and gets in a new meter. So we have an overhang of supply that was never sold that was counted as a new house when it got first connected to the ESB back in 2007 or 10 or whenever, uh, but might have been vacant. And like NAM inherited 14,000 vacant units, uh, don't forget, vacant apartments. Um, and now when it came back on stream, say in 2016, it gets a new ESB connection and is again miraculously counted as a new unit, even though the unit might be 10 years old or 100 years old or 50 years old. Uh, once it's been vacant for two years, it gets Do, a new Does meter. it matter? Because yeah. uh, it, in all intents and purposes, it is a new house. If it's been vacant and now it's been no. connected, it means someone's no, moving into it. it. It absolutely matters. And out of the 15,000 houses I've calculated that we've probably built about 7,500, half of those are going to be one-off houses in the countryside mm-hmm. that never come to the market. So you're down to three and a half or 4,000 what we call estate homes or apartments that everybody has an option to buy out of the supposed, you know, 15,000. And it really does matter because it's not... Otherwise, if we're not building more houses, we're just shuffling the, the deck chairs around the sinking Titanic. We're just taking units from one and putting them on, a, on another side and saying that's a new house. And it isn't. We need to be adding to our housing stock every year. And in the last five years, yeah, like the stock of, of housing in Ireland, only 2% of it has been built in the last five years. I mean, that that is mad. We should be... Like, if we were really building 15,000 houses, you could ask the companies that supply them, the joint Munster Joinery and Ballytherm and all these... All these Building suppliers, have they seen the levels of activity that they would expect to see if we were building 15,000 houses? I'd be very surprised if they came back and said yes. So it is the, the department, as far as I'm concerned, have been a little bit disingenuous and misleading the public. It's only recently that they've actually publicly put the caveat on their numbers to say we use ESB connections and these are a proxy for house building. They will say to you, I suspect, that they use a dashboard of indicators, right, uh, including commencements and um, planning applications. These are all totally inaccurate and they know they're inaccurate themselves. It's like designing a car and saying, we won't bother putting in the speedometer, lads. We'll count the timing of the trees as they go by <laughs> or we'll add a bit of string to the tow bar and connect it to the house. Well, look, to be you know, fair to them, I did speak to them and they said, look, we know the ESB has been used as a proxy. It's what we've done for 40 years. We know it's not accurate. And did they say that? Yes. Because they have said, there are, there are headlines in the, in the Irish Times saying that the department says they're, they're 
their their figures are totally reliable. And the, the Secretary General of the Department of the Rockets Committee uh, earlier on this week and saying pretty much the same thing. So it's like they're talking out of both sides of their mouths here, to be honest. Yeah, no, they, well, they did. They, they accepted that um, the ESB Connections, you know, was taking in the vacant house reconnection thing and that they were trying to use all these other factors no, well, and look, tweak the to numbers. To be perfectly honest, there is, there is a calculation there that is relatively accurate that they refuse to use. It's called completion certificates. And it's the one measure they refuse to use. And I applied to see it under Freedom of Information. I was refused. Now, I've got it from another source, uh, which I'm sure they'll be delighted to know. Uh, and, you know, I can count now the number of houses that were built last year. And when that comes out, people are going to get another shock. Right. So, Carl Dieter, what are you seeing then? Um, you know, you have people coming in looking for mortgages. How are the banks behaving these <coughs> days and what's their contribution to um, getting new houses um, and families into them or apartments? Housing units, I should be saying, Ronan, is it? So I'm not uh, coming H- from the Homes, I think, world. is what homes, most people call homes, them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. House, so, housing units is is like an oversight word. When you're buying a house, you're buying a home or, or you know, whatever. What people are seeing, what they're doing, what are banks at. Um, banks are lending. They are open for business. Uh, what we see is obviously people looking to buy and then having to adjust their expectations. Um. A lot of people, you can't really blame them. You're seeing rents going up, and so they're thinking, "Geez, it's cheaper to own than to rent. Maybe I should try and go out and buy." You know, and then they're they're seeing that the the prices is being bid up beyond where they can go. So they say, "Look, I'll go for a new build." You know, you don't have to go into a bid more on them. The new build supply isn't necessarily there either. Uh, you're, they're being squeezed from all angles, and so what you're actually starting to see is is kind of they're going further away. So. Back in, say, 2010, when we were doing mortgages for first-time buyers, they were buying, like, in all Dublin areas. We're, we're predominantly city-based. We cover the country, but a lot of it is, is in Dublin. Uh, you would see them buying in places where there's a, you know, a postcode like D4 or D12, whatever it is at, at the end, or Dublin 17. Now we're starting to see a lot more where the first-time buyers are, are Dublin-located, but they're buying further away. Uh, the Bank and Payments Federation also has loan-level data which um, it's not public, but it, I've I've been privy to as um, in in consultations with them that shows that the number of people uh, below age thirty buying in Dublin is really going down. Mm-hmm. That the number of people on average wage buying in Dublin is really going down. And, and what happens when you have an issue like the one we have is um, you can call it gentrification. I would I would I would call it kind of. Wealth expulsion. It's some kind of like wealth effect that kicks everyone out. It's a medical term, kind of. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, so, not, so I just is... made that word up, by yeah. the way, so don't like look for it. Bat and bending. <laughs> yeah, hey, it could be like Celtic Tiger. It might take off. So you heard it here first, folks. Okay. Um, but say Marion Finnegan was writing in the Irish Times on Friday and she was saying, look, we think house prices are soaring, but they're still 40% down on 2006. Now, not that 2006 is a target, she was at pains to mention. Our. Yeah. House prices in Dublin now too expensive, or are they just fair? You see, when it comes to housing, like there's so much about it that is is, is it's hard to get your head around. I mean, Lorton, for instance, saying, "Look, our, our completion numbers are completely false." Does that mean the boom was false? We didn't have ninety thousand homes because, like, if everything is is completely opaque, it makes any analysis quite quite difficult. And so you're actually relying more on your gut and with the the few stars you can see in the sky, and you've got this like economic sextant where you're trying to see where things are going. But to compare anything to 2006, you know, to me, that's the equivalent of saying, oh, this hangover isn't as bad as the time I smoked crack. Like, like <laughs> this, we need to have an adult conversation about where we are in the history of the world. And what we went through in the past 
is just so abnormal in the history of house prices. Ronan knows this. I know this. We're probably two of the people in the country who can speak with some authority on housing hit price history. Yeah. And and we know that what happened was really, really mental. So, so what do you call today, it's, it's Ronan? Not, it's not it, – so economists think of bubbles as being driven by capital, driven by credit. So if, you, if the banks lend too recklessly and people borrow too recklessly, that's what creates a bubble. What we have now is prices rising but rents rising as well. It's a big difference to 12 or 13 years ago. 12 or 13 years ago, we were building lots. We're going to assume that is true Absolutely, because yeah. we, we were building lots because you could see rents going down. But prices were going up because the banks were giving out more than enough to compensate for the extra units. They were giving so much that the budgets were going up and prices went up even as rents were going down. The big difference now is that prices and rents are both going up. In Dublin, rents are up 75% in some parts of the city and prices are up by 60%. Um, and that's telling us that we've just got a chronic shortage of housing. You, you could, though, by the way, and I think it's important to mention, have a, a near bubble-type level of investment, though, because in the world, everyone is looking for yield, and we have a yield curve or, or return on fixed income investments, which is so low, and central banks that are putting so much money into the market uh, in, in, in different technical measures that we don't have to borrow that cash. That money can come from anywhere. And so you'll see real estate investment trusts come in really backed up with cash. And they're cash buyers who don't need to go to the you know bank for a loan. And on the completions, you know, when Lorcan was saying, oh, in half these houses, you can't buy them. If they're building built to rent, they're never going for sale anyway. So there's a lot of other things that make where we are now different in a very unique way. And again, it just means that, you know, I am... I'm often wrong, but seldom in doubt. So I will tell you emphatically that I think we are headed into some really bad territory. That might not happen. Bad but in I don't what see, sense? Well, I just don't see where the relief is going to come from. For me, a good economy has you know, fairly low unemployment. We've got that. It's safe. We've got that. You know, we have a decent currency. We've got that. Like you, you go through all these boxes, you start ticking them off. But something as fundamental as housing, when it becomes unaffordable, it creates all these distortions and issues. Like if you're a renter and you get a raise and then your rent goes up, it's almost like an unofficial tax. Mm. But then every time the landlord gets a, a, a perk, the government takes that. And so then the government has more money and they're saying, what should we do with this extra money? Do we somehow subsidize that housing? And you get into this situation where, where there's just too many perverse outcomes. And the real issue is, why don't we tax land? Why don't we tax all buildings more? Why don't we relax certain rules so that you can try different things? You know, that the level of vacancy in the places where we're told we need houses is astronomical. And yet these same buildings lie vacant for when, decades when, on end. When, 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 that, when, the, when there's a couple of points to make here, and Carl's like spot on here, when the department or when officials, particularly recently at the Peter McVeary Trust on conference on empty homes, as soon as that was mentioned, the idea of taxing uh, vacant properties or, or empty homes. The department, uh, via their Rebuilding Ireland Twitter account, were straight on saying, oh, lads, we have to be careful about the Constitution and people's mm. personal private property rights. So there's an ideological, almost messianic aversion to the idea of taxing property in Ireland. The second thing that, that Carl mentioned, which was very interesting, is the idea of data. Uh, we're just bad at data in this country. And the problem I have with, with numbers being being iffy, to put it politely, is that those numbers go up to the OECD, they go up to Eurostat, they go up to the World Bank as our official numbers for the houses that we built every year, know, like knowing that they're well wrong. They go down then to companies and investors 
and the likes of banks. I've spoken to a couple of banks recently who are obviously reading what I'm writing about the numbers and saying, hang on, will you talk us through what you think? Because they're planning on X number of mortgages in the next five to ten years, uh, you know, future planning around the property market and what's going to happen, what services they should provide. And now that's all cast into doubt because I'm saying the numbers are probably, if we're lucky, they're about half of, mm. of what they're saying. So they have to go back and recalibrate it. And that's really a bad use of numbers that goes into making bad policy. We should send our statistics in brown envelopes just to make sure it's as shoddy as <laughs> Actually, the other things that have I've happened. spoken to a lot of economists in all different kinds of sectors, not just housing, and they're saying all our measures of the economy are actually off. And it's Lep- and, and it's not it's not it's, it's not <laughs> it's like that say the housing one where we're clearly identifying a flaw, but actually we're following rules according to Eurostat, but they're still not an accurate. The measure. Department has you not following the rules except yeah. anyone's except their own. To be perfectly honest with you, but okay, Lurkin. But they, they, what I will say, and I'm not coming out to be you know Department of Housing fanboy. Yeah. They're, they're approaching a problem in a certain way. They obviously have to believe in the way they're approaching it. But what they're not doing is inventing a standard which makes them look good, which previous yeah, governments yeah. didn't use. So, I mean, yeah. they, 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 they are consistently, yeah, they are consistently wrong, but they are consistent. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that doesn't matter. The, the justification of using the ESB numbers is that we've always done it that way, even though we know it's wrong. And to be honest with you, you know, use car, I've always smoked crack, even though I've used it wrong, so I'm not going to move on to heroin. I mean, that that's just doesn't kind of work for me. The other point that Carl made about relief, where's relief going to come from? I don't know. The build numbers are way down. And even if building does come back, we haven't got the skills. You know, we've closed apprentice programmes. We're, we're lacking. What, what happens when then when you have high demand and you have no skills as you import labour, prices go up, quality goes down. And then we're back to 2004 where we're looking at like poor, you know, poor quality, shoddy workmanship. You do, you, do you not see anything workable or positive in this Rebuilding Ireland programme? Oh, I think the, the, the last pillar... Uh, is the one that they're doing last, obviously, which is the one they should do first, which is about empty homes and housing. They're the low-hanging fruit. That's out there. There mightn't be 198,000 vacant houses. It doesn't matter. There's 160, 150,000. Yeah. They're the ones we should be focusing on straight away. The help to buy scheme or whatever it's called, that was directed at new uh, houses. I mean, if we're really interested in housing people, that would have been directed at second-hand houses or whatever and getting people occupying these buildings that are, that are empty. So first-time buyers, but it wouldn't matter what, what kind of... Well, just a first-time buyer need a new house. Tell me why. It doesn't exactly come like, like First-time buyers are kind of, and okay, disclosure, I love first-time buyers, they're my bread and butter. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, to hell with them too because like, when you have a housing crisis, <laughs> it kills everyone. So it's like, yeah. you know, there is no save the women and children in this. You've got to save everybody. <laughs> and why do, they need a, why do first-time buyers need a new house? I mean, as a politician, I, I, you could see why they would focus on this because this is probably where the votes are in greatest number. But let's look at this as what the country needs. And what the country needs is not more family homes per se. We've lots and lots of family homes. We just don't have families living in them. So what we need to do is create options for people who currently live in family homes, whether it's seven students to a house, three young professionals, uh, a pair of empty nesters, whatever it is. What, do, what, what would suit them more? What would suit their need more? Uh, and build those. And that's the tougher bit because the system is designed for the last 50 years. It's been all about, well, we've got a whole bunch of lads who can build us three and four bed um, houses in estates. So let's they're telling us what they need to get started again. So let's just do that. That's not actually what the country needs. Now, I've noticed you arguing against um, apartment building regulations and... I think maybe it was. Morgan calls me shoebox lines. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. That, say, 25 years ago when people did start building apartments because of tax incentives, these small little apartments were built. You know, one person can move into them, maybe the couple. As soon as they have a kid, it's no good to them. They're trying to move out. 
So it was seen as a good thing that if you're trying to encourage apartment living, well, then let's build a good size apartment with windows in enough places that actually... You want windows now too. (laughs) (laughs) A family would be able to live in it because it's space that they want. Now you come along and you say, oh, no, 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 these apartments are too big and they're too fancy and it's costing uh, developers too much to build them. Let's forget about these regulations. But, but remember, the, the, cost, the cost is not the Defend cost. Them. It the, was never too big. It was too expensive. The, the, yeah, the developer doesn't bear these costs. It's the tenant or the, or the, yes, or the purchaser yes, who bears these costs. Yeah. So if you put in place, we want everything that's built from now on to be energy passive or it has to have 10-foot ceilings or it has to have triple balconies or whatever it is that becomes the latest fashion and absolutely every single apartment has to have this, you make it more expensive. What do you do? You price out people on lower incomes. So it's not that all of these things are in and of themselves bad things. Obviously, a basement car parking space is a benefit but it comes at a cost and it should be we should be at least alive to the possibility that by having a requirement for one lift per two dwellings on a floor or having a requirement for one or, or more basement car parking spaces um, for a for a unit that that may actually price people out the only the only can I just Lurking. say that, that, that the yeah. only thing there the floor like Ron is obviously you know he's, he's kind of right but there's no guarantee that when when a builder gets savings by having like you know, reduced standards and regulations, that 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 price is passed on to the purchaser well, because I, I, the, I, the market will determine yeah, what but price. The, the but can I agree, with, a, can I agree with you on this? I'll let Carl first, then I'll go back to you, Ronan. Ronan's making a good point. Lorcan's making a good point. Yeah. But then there's a, there is a third and important component. When you have scarcity, it doesn't matter what's being done. Okay, so if and I always use the idea of a glass of water in the desert. I could be selling you water from a pool. You're still going to drink it because you've got no choice. Now, if we get to a point, though, where, for instance, the state started to free up their own land banks because the state is the biggest landowner, it's the biggest landholder. Mm-hmm. If they started to say every month we're going to free up two hectares for development of, of, of whatever it is that we want on the day, you know, maybe it's a high-density apartments, maybe yeah. it's three-bed semis. But they did it in a way that people just knew there was more land that was going to constantly be getting cranked out. That would make a huge difference because then people have the choice of let me select. So if I'm the, the person that Ronan is talking about that's not making that much who I used to be, that was my real-life yeah. story, I'll live in somewhere that is small. And I used to live in you know places that, that weren't great. And then I started to do better, and so I went somewhere else. And if I want to rent... Let that be my choice. If I want to buy, at least have the option of that potentially being the case because it's one of the biggest wealth builders a person gets a chance to have in their life. And that's why I think the idea of, of, of the long-term rent being you know, foisted on someone because prices are so stupid, that's where you start to get into, into a future crisis because yeah. your housing crisis becomes a pension crisis. That's right. They've got less kids so and, you can't and, you know, pay and the I've elderly, noticed, you know. Actually, Ronan, I'll put this to you. I've noticed people kind of sneering saying, oh, the Irish people, we all want to own our own home. You know, that's so retro. On the continent, they don't. We've one, but, of, the, we've one of the world's lowest home ownership rates. Right. But what lowest, do, but what, not highest. But what do you do then when you get to 65, you're still renting and you, and, and you need... to Germany. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be 65. We're in the EU rent. now. you got to live in Spain. Like the point about owning your own home is if you spend your... It's a, it's a neat behavioural trick to save for your old age. Yes. Uh, and, and it but, means you have an asset. But there are other ways And of, you don't have a living cost. But there are other ways of engineering that. As We have a PRSA. What I would like to see is that 
from from the day you start work that there's an automatic deduction that goes into a, a savings account, a fund for the future. And you can you have the option once in your life to make a withdrawal if you want to buy a home. But if you leave it in, yeah. it gets it, it continues as part of your pension savings. So that when you get to 65, if you don't own a home, you have a nest egg that provides you an income year to year that you can use to survive. Right. If you have bought a home then obviously you have that as well. But how can you afford to save if you've been paying this big rent all the time? So that's well, nearly like two mortgages. You see, the, the wealth effect is, is a thing. Like I'll, I'll, um, I've spoken about this before. The, the, there's a big study done in Harvard about the wealth effect of buying a home. And they'd done it in 2003. They said, oh, look, it's very positive. It makes, you know, black, Hispanics and Asians and, and white people, they all become wealthy from it. This is great. And then people said, look, you know, obviously there was a housing boom. So your data is now wrong. They said, well, let's use the same study again and look at what it would have been had something changed. And what they found was even through a housing crash, the wealth effect was still positive. And a lot of people who lost housing wealth or lost wealth in that process, say, for instance, they lost their home, the only wealth they truly lost was the wealth that was built up by being a homeowner. And the renters had virtual zero wealth. So all I'm saying is when you talk about a neat behavioral trick... It's, it's, it's more than that. It is actually, you get the utility, you get uplifts in, in values, you, you get a lot of embedded benefits. And so, that, that turns into and state, a generational. state expenditure in yeah. Ireland yeah. goes onto the person's balance sheet, which isn't great, but that is how it works. And then the people who own their own home in their 60s can then give their kids money to help them buy a home. You know, there is a huge impact that is from a- not being able to buy your own home, isn't I, I, there? From not having the uh, from not having the financial wherewithal to buy your own home, but whether you have to or not is down to the the way the system's set up. There's just one other thing I wanted to come back to, and it was when Lorcan said that if you change the standards, that'll go to the builder's bottom line. Um, I'd actually agree with that for what's currently being built. The point is that if you change the standards and make them more affordable, you get more built. And this is stuff that benefits society as well as the builders. As in if we're only building 4,000 units at the moment in estates and apartment blocks and we need 40,000, well, part of that is going to be, let's see, how do we make it affordable to build again? And sure, the people who can, uh, the people, the builders who can build at a profit now will get a bigger profit when they complete their unit. But it's the other 35,000, 40,000 units that don't get built now that would get built. That's where society benefits. So I think it is, that, that's an important point that, that needs to be made. Mm. There's, a, there's another interesting Lurkin. thing, yeah, about uh, Ron's point about the home ownership levels. We're down to 67.6% home ownership in Ireland, mm. which is quite low. A little bit above the UK, a little bit above the US. Um, and obviously Germany and Austria are in the 50%, but then Norway's at 85%. And so we're, we're, we're somewhere around then. It's down from, we were just around 697 or 70% five years ago. So the numbers of homeowners and people who own their own homes in Ireland is falling. On the rise, however, is a whole category of people who are going to struggle to ever get a mortgage because they will be highly qualified, highly educated people, but they will be working forever on contract work. Banks regard them as high risk yeah. and refuse them mortgages. I argue with the banks, I've met a couple of the banks recently to talk about housing numbers, and I argue with the banks that these kind of people are short term, they look a bit risky on paper, but in the medium to long term, they're very secure bets because they move they move jobs to get a better job or to get promotion or to get another contract. So the banks are now starting to look at, I hope if they've if, we've, if that cup of coffee that we had is, is going to have any impact at all, look at things like 11 month mortgages or whatever. That, you know, People on contract can miss a payment without penalty as they wait to start a new contract. 
because there's a whole cohort of people out there and this, it's the changing nature of the world that there are fewer and fewer permanent jobs out there. So how are these people going to access the type of, you know, uh, benefits that, that you acquire to And, a, a and do you see that as something that, you know, the government can't directly influence but that the banks will come round to simply because, you know, the market will have changed. Well, the banks are recognised that the mortgage market is a dwindling market for them over yeah. time and they need to look at new ways of accessing people to give them mortgages because remember, a bank sees, if a bank lends money to somebody, it sees it as an asset. Right? I see it as money out of my pocket, they see it as an asset because they're going to get you know, that amount plus 70% back over 30 years or whatever it is. They're going to get more money back. So they're looking at other ways to lever that market to see should they be giving mortgages to people that they normally wouldn't consider. And with the rise of a whole lot of people, and we need more qualified people doing jobs, but they're on contract jobs, those people are going to struggle to get on the home ownership ladder. I hate that kind of phrase, mm-hmm. phraseology, but to access the benefits that Carl and Ronan have been talking about. Um, so the banks are part of the problem as well, I think, that they just need to recalibrate their concept of risk and the next thing they'll unlock a whole cohort of people who are going to be a huge cohort uh, in the and near future. And Carl, presumably they'll simply have to do that because they need to lend money to people or they're out of business themselves. Yeah, well, the, the lending market can and will change anyway. Like banks weren't even in house lending mm-hmm. up until the, the late 70s when, when the, the 76 Finance Act kind of pushed them into it because the, the building societies were such bangers. The world is always changing, but the people Ron, or sorry, the people Lorcan is talking about, they actually have a, a name for them now, uh, the precariat, and it's the, the oh, precarious yeah. proletariat. Um, I don't think it's a, a nice caricature, but basically it's people who might be highly educated, but they can't get those permanent jobs. And, and, and yeah, they might start to risk to the, lend to them, but look at the future risk, because this is the same conversation Bill Clinton was having back in the late 90s about housing and urban development and loans to low-income black families. And what can happen is, is if you do get an economic downturn and you're saying, oh, they'll just move job. Well, when there's no jobs, the people on contract get the shaft first. And so you could create the next wave of a mortgage crisis, which, you know, they come up with fairly decent regularity. You had the 70s bank closures. You had the inflation. You had the savings and loan crisis. You know, we, we had the last boom bust. So... These are all things that you've got to be thinking of because when you're doing lending, you're thinking across the curve. We're not thinking in today's terms the way that, that we're kind of stuck in right now. I would also get back to what Ronan was talking about regulation. And, and what I'd like to do is just say, just for a moment, imagine that a new rule came out and we said, look, there's these homes you can get. They're 20 foot by 20 foot and they're two, foot, two stories high. And you have the right to connect this to someone's water supply if they give you permission to put it on their land and connect to their septic tank or their sewer or whatever. And it costs 25,000 euro and it's a, uh, you know, about an 800 foot home because you've got two stories. That's my maths is right. Yeah. Okay. So imagine what that would do to the housing market. Could builders still turn around and juice the whole system and take all the excess out of it because people wanted to pay an extra 400,000 for their version of what they had? You know, you might start to get better choices. And someone might say, well, I don't want to have to live in a prefabbed 20 foot by 20 foot, two story high cube. But if you want to, and you can do all these other things with your life, because for the price of a car, you now have a house. Well, look at what that can do to society and look what it would do to land values. Because you'd say to yourself, look, why, how, how do I compete with that guy? You're going to put me out of business. Because for me to build a thing costs 400,000. He can go build a house for 25. That's not fair. And you say, yeah, okay, well, let's start to have a rethink about the society that we want. Can you really sell an acre of land for a million euro anymore? Guess what? No. Go take a hike. You're out of business? Yeah, sometimes that happens, you greedy shyster. Like, that's the kind of stuff you have to do at some stage. But it's that painful decision that we don't want to do. 
Ronan, just before the break there, Carl was talking about how maybe we just need to change the whole paradigm of housing and give people more choices because when you're pinning them down to this hugely expensive asset, it's just ruining our lives. We just spend our lives paying for the bloody thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's similar to a point I've made a couple of times already uh, uh, today, which is that it's not just about the three and four bed family home. And I really think that all levels of government have to join the dots here. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dublin City Council uh, sent back applications to build purpose-built student accommodation beside uh, the new DIT campus. Uh, each of them was about 500 um, beds. Is this in Grange Gorman? This is in Grange Gorman, yeah. And the uh, the the reasoning for the council gave was just, I mean, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to make it up. People would have sent it back and said, that's unbelievable. And um, they said that uh, if they gave the go-ahead for this, um, that students would drown out the local residents. Um, and uh, they should have thought about that before they gave permission for a campus of 20,000 students in yeah. one area. Um, the students are going to displace the local residents if you don't build the purpose-built student accommodation because five or six or seven students in a house will easily outbid a one-and-a-half-income household that's struggling to, to pay the rent anyway currently on the North Circuit Road or whatever You already it see it happening along... I live not that far away from there, and so do you, actually, and you see it already there with... Units, landlords are already subdividing existing units yeah. to squeeze more people and units into their existing right. buildings. So you and, can see them preparing for this. And, yeah, and I mean, the, it, uh, the, as I say, the thinking you can hear, I just cannot understand how they could possibly look at a city that needs 30,000 purpose-built student bedrooms in the next five years. They get an applic- two applications, each for about 500, and they say... One of the things they said on it was prove there's a need for student accommodation. What? I mean, I, I couldn't make this up because I wouldn't be able to believe it. So if they can write this, they must believe it at some level. But how are they so disconnected from the facts? And on that, Sir Lurkin, sir, I spoke to a developer yesterday and he was saying there's this huge gap between, say, what's in the housing policy and the reality for him on the ground when he actually tries to build some houses. Mm. So the number one he think, uh, thing he complained about, it wasn't cost, it was delays. It takes so long to deal with the council to try and get any kind of pre-planning discussion, to negotiate Part 5 requirements. This is the requirement that developers need to give 10% of their housing stock over to social mm-hmm. housing. 30, uh, 37 of them were delivered last year on the back of 15,000 houses. Oh, right. Well, well, his whole thing was, look, I'll do the social housing, I'll do it, but talk to me about what you want and let's negotiate a price. And it was all... It was bureaucracy, yeah. was the inflation, as far as he was concerned. Yeah, and, bureaucracy, and inflation for him is time, and time is money. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly. So, I mean, I would have no problem uh, agreeing with that. I think he's probably right, and, and I hear that. And there's different different qualities in, shall we say, uh, or standards uh, in different local authorities around the country. So, depending on, on which local authority he was dealing with, some of them have better reputations than others. Quite often, the pre-planning is used as a ruse to kind of bypass the system by the department. But actually, if you look at some of the pre-planning statistics, pre-planning is when, uh, say, an applicant goes in to meet the council just to have a little chat about what's going on. The council might say, before you lodge the application, come back with more detail. And sometimes the applicant themselves is cause of the delay. But there's no doubt that within councils there are problems with that. And we've been recently looking at the idea of um, there's room, a lot of people won't know this, but in Dublin there's room for 4,000 units or apartments above the shop around the city. 4,000. Yeah. Dublin City planner John O'Hara said that. Now, the problem with that is we've been looking at how, how you convert uh, see the upstairs of a hairdresser's into an apartment. Uh, it takes, uh, it, first of all, it takes, you need to apply for uh, planning permission, then you need to f- apply for um, disability, 
um, and fire certificate, right? Three different applications, three different timelines, three different fees, takes five months. Before you get three different sets of plans from the architect, before you get going, you spend about 10 grand. Yeah. Before you even might get kicked back from planning permission, and it can take five, six months. So we've been arguing at an Oireachtas uh, submission myself, Mel Reynolds and Orla Hegarty, um, that we need a one-stop shop for this. It should take five to ten days and should cost about fifteen hundred euro. That is the way you do it. by reducing administration and delay uh, and bureaucracy like that. You suddenly unlock potentially four thousand people, uh, four thousand uh, units of accommodation for four thousand. Units around the, around the, just Dublin alone, yeah. And there's loads and there's hundreds in Cork as well. What, so why, why do people? Why what people this builder was that? worried about too is that they've um, in in Simon Coveney's policy, which kind of seems like a good idea, is that let's take the big developments away from the city councils and put them straight into on board Planola, yeah. and that'll cut out the council. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's saying, but will on board Planola have the staff to deal with this, or are they just going to kick Look, back that, spurious that is one additional of, is information? One of the most me. misguided policies that have, have come out of many in, in the Department of Housing, the idea that any application, any, a planning application for 100 or more, or more units goes straight to Umbar Planala and not the local authority. Um, what you see now, and the Director of Planning in Kildare County Council said it at a conference I was speaking at last week, he sees a rush to get in before May the 10th because that's the cut-off date when that comes in. Everybody wants to get in. Your planning application, your developer, can you can negotiate with the council and the planner. You can't negotiate with Umbar Planala. You can appeal to the planner with the, if they get a bad decision from the local authority. Mm. Appeal from Barbara and goes straight to the High Court at 10 grand a day. So this is something that a lot of developers do not want to. You know? Imagine, Carl imagine even worse. Imagine you go to Onboard Plan and you get your planning and you get it in a week. Okay? And then you say to yourself, oh, crikey, I never spoke to the local authority. The water we thought we were going to get, the yeah. wastewater. Yeah. We thought that this was some other way. And this is the interesting thing is when, when you start to get into uh, local area groundwater, local area drainage, local like there's there's a there's a whole world and it's a fascinating world that most people should never really look into. But it's the <laughs> the plumbing system, the electricity conduits, how everything gets anywhere, gas lines, there's so many things happening that it's almost a miracle that the whole place doesn't just grind to a halt because it's so huge and complex. But it works and that's great. But if you if you circumvent all that, given that the local authority is actually the most expert in it, really what's going to happen is you're going to have to talk to the local authority anyway. to go with Tom or not. So what I would say is Simon Coveney, my opinion, has a good-sized pair of balls. He's willing to try stuff that, that other people simply were too cowardly to ever give a go. And previous housing ministers, basically, by by comparison, were therefore sackless. And I, I think, think Alan that, Kelly would probably disagree with you on that one. Well, on Alan the, Kelly, the, whatever. I'm sure his, his ego knows no bounds. Yeah, and he just won an election. Yeah, good for him. Didn't even pass the count on the poll. Look... When you actually gauge what was done, how, and how they're trying, Simon Coveney's 10 times Alan Kelly, and in a shorter amount of time. Now, he's riding on some of the coattails of what Alan Kelly did manage to achieve and the few things that he did get right. But, you know, we need that kind of approach. Now, the fact that it's not working doesn't mean it's his fault. It's actually the fault of, of an entire system that is crippled from top well, to tail in so many ways. Well, it's also the fault of the people who advise him. Simon Coveney goes in there and he knows as much about housing as your average punter when he goes in. He's from an agricultural management background or whatever he did before that. Uh, he knows nothing about housing when he goes in. And he seemed to have gone native very quickly with the information he was being given from his department officials. You rely on the officials who were there but, all the but time. But what's your other choice? And there's an, awful lot of, there's, an awful, there's an awful lot of experts around the country, Carl, including yourself, that, that could easily be tapped for knowledge. <laughs> um, but, you know, you see Too this in, in the 
policies that come out, the policies, a lot of them don't make sense. Like, surely Simon Coney uh, wouldn't agree with the kind of manipulation of figures that have been going on over the years. Or maybe he has because the department convinced him that the ESB connection is the right thing to do. So I think he's been badly handled or badly advised by his officials and the civil servants in the department. So, Ronan Lyons, is the government trying to do some things to fix this, but it's just really hard and it's going to take some time? Or do you see fundamental flaws in the policy? I'm an economist, so I see everything in terms of supply and demand. So that makes my life quite easy. Everything everything the government has done in the last year and a bit has really been around managing demand, whether it's helped to buy even the central bank's tweak to their mortgage rules, uh, the rent pressure zones, all of that's just around managing demand. But I'm going to come out as a demand fundamentalist. If people want to live in Ireland, let them. If, if the population in this country grows to 12 million or 20 million, brilliant. We've done something right. People want to live here. The question is how you cater for that extra demand. And for me, the single most important statistic in housing, the single most important measure of health in the housing market is not the change in house prices, the change in rents or anything like that. It's if you get a 10% increase in demand, is it met with a 10% increase in supply? And that's roughly what's happened in the Greater Dublin area in the last five or six years. And the answer clearly in Ireland currently is no. What we need to do now, they've, they've got in, they've done some measures that they can turn around to voters and say, look, we've done this or that for you. But they really now have to manage supply, figure out why it's so expensive to build in Ireland, get that cost down. And that will work both for market housing and for social housing. And that's the way you get a system that if there's a 10% increase in demand, you get a 10% increase in supply. It's a corollary that where the state could actually start building themselves. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and that, I mean in oh, sorry, all forms that, of demand. Like, some, Simon Coney has made himself and said the cost in Dublin, a three-bed social health cost 180000 to build. There's no reason why we should be buying them off the market for 270000 or 290000 mm. when we should be building them ourselves. The state owns a huge amount of land in every local authority around the country. We've got a huge uh, demand on the, on the for social housing. We're parking most of them in the private rental sector, pushing up rents and squeezing out everybody else. And the state took their, their, their foot off the accelerator building social housing with 10 or 15 years ago. It needs to start driving that, that coaching for now really, really fundamentally. And that will take an awful lot of pressure off every other sector uh, in the housing. And do you think Simon Coveney wants to do that? No, he's relying on the market to do it. He's relying on things okay. like part five. So he's assuming that we build 25,000 houses a year over the next five years and that would supply 4,700 part five houses. But if we're only building uh, a few thousand, that number is already uh, at a loss. Right. We, we will down. meet. Very last word. Yeah. We yeah. will meet demand eventually, but we'll do it in a way that is so far after the fact that it's basically a period of hyper supply and then it falls over on itself. And that tends to be what I think it'll is, is, is the end game of this. Yeah, it'll, it'll happen sometime, uh, some date at the end of January in about 10 years' time for three minutes in the middle of the night. And that will uh, be the supply will have met demand and then passed well, on. I'm, and I'm, then bang. <laughs> I'm glad I have a house, but I worry if my children will ever have one. Uh, Lurkin Sir Ronan Lyons, Carl Dieter, many thanks for joining me this morning. Aidan McKelvey researched, Stephen Jordan produced, and thank you for listening.